0: Amen. All right. I know you're probably all very sad and hurt over what I'm about to say, which is that this is the end of our series. It's the last week of the productive and effective life. And I know that's devastating to you as well as to me. Um, But we will go through this First, our Second Peter chapter 1, again today for the eighth week in a row, and it's going to be great. We're finishing our series called The Effective, or The Productive and Effective Life, Eight Biblical Steps for Reaching Your Full Potential. And again, it's not so much a self-help series as much as it is, how do we gain the tools we need to be able to answer God's call in our life? Have you ever felt like you're spinning your wheels in your life, like you're just not getting where you should be, where you belong? Well, there's something in this chapter that you're missing then because if we put all of these pieces into place, it is a promise that we will be productive and effective in our knowledge of Christ. And I want to be productive and effective. Amen? Do you want your life to count for something? I want my life to count for something. And so that means I want to be productive and effective in my knowledge of Christ, which means I need to put these things into practice to make every effort to do that. So I was going to hand out a qu- but I decided against it. I was going to see if everybody could list all eight in order, then we would go on to the next series. If not, we would just start this one over again because it doesn't make any difference. If you've heard something before, it makes a difference if you can put it into practice. And so what we want to do is to really bring this in to who we are and live it out. But let's go to second Peter chapter one. Probably the last time we'll read this for a while, but I don't promise never to go back to it. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, it says this, "...His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness." Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature so you can connect with God and you can escape something and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we escape the darkness of this world. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. That's step one. It starts with faith, faith in God, trusting God, believing in God. Add to your faith goodness, which is the strength to do the right thing, and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Those are our eight steps. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, meaning that we need to have all eight, but once we've got all eight, we still need to bump them all up as we go. So just because we're past step three doesn't mean we don't have to go back to step one. It's all part of growing all of them over time. So if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. That is our scripture that we've been going over for the last eight weeks. And last week we talked about brotherly kindness, which is Phileo, Philadelphia, it's it's brotherly love. It would have been strange for them to say add to godliness love and to love love. So that's why it's brotherly kindness. In other places, Phileo is just translated love, but here it's brotherly kindness or brotherly love. Make the distinction between that and agape, which is what we'll be talking about today. So last week we're talking about loving our fellow Christian, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It was last week we talked about who is us and how do we treat us. So who is us? Us is the people that love Jesus. The people who are serving Jesus, following Jesus. That's us. How do we treat us? We love each other. That's how we treat us. It's not enough to have just you and God, your personal relationship with Jesus. That's good to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that relationship brings you into relationship with the body of Christ. It makes you part of a community, part of a family, and so if you have to engage in that family as well. That's what step seven is all about, is loving your fellow believers. And Jesus stated it very strongly in John chapter 13, verse 34, where he says this, He's talking to his disciples, and he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is a command, and we must love one another. So, Jesus says, As I have loved you, as Jesus has loved us, we are to love one another. As he has loved us, that's godliness. Step six, step seven, we love others. So how has Jesus loved us? Once we got our theology all straightened out and got everything in our life working right and we showed up for church enough, then Jesus started to love us. Is that right? No, no, no. That's not it at all. (laughs) He loved us while we were his enemies. He loved us while we were messing everything up. He loved us through that into our relationship with him. Very, very compassionate, very forgiving. He's loved us in incredible, amazing ways. And that's how he says we're to love one another. So we're to love each other as Jesus has loved us. And our big question last week was, are you capable of that? Are you capable of loving other people as Jesus has loved you? Because that's a big ask, amen? a big ask. It's hard to love with the love of Jesus because that's like as far as it can go, right? I mean, that's amazing. So what capacity do we have? Can we be that community? You know, the dream is to be part of a, a faith community, part of a church part of an assembly or congregation where you've got 20, 50, 100, 200 people whatever it is that all love you like Jesus loves them and that that just intermingles between everybody what would it be like to be part of a group of 100 people where all of them love you like Jesus loves them wouldn't it be something to be part of that group that would be an amazing, beautiful thing, and that is God's plan for the church, but we have to be capable of doing that. If we're quick to hold a grudge, quick to get uh, you know, busy, quick to not care about other people, it's not going to work. So we have to have that capacity within us to love each other as Jesus has loved us. It's a very powerful thing. One thing I want to make a clarification on, last week we talked about uh, the special someone fallacy that out in the world there's this special someone that if I finally meet them, all my problems will be solved. Well, there might be a special someone there out there for you, but the deal is that special someone isn't going to fix you. You've got to fix you. And the odds are very high that if you don't fix you and then you meet that special someone that you're not even going to be capable of having God's plan A relationship in the first place. You won't be able to function inside of a love and respect relationship. So there's no one in this world that you're going to be able to have a good relationship with because you're not capable of functioning inside that relationship. So you've got to fix you first. And then you can have God's plan A relationship, marriage relationship, that sort of thing. But you've got to deal with you first. And it's the same thing in the church. If I can't love other people like Jesus loves me, and we can't have a big bunch of people like that, then this whole plan isn't going to come to pass. So we've got to fix the thing on the inside first, then we can love each other. So step seven, love the people like you, who have a like faith with you, who are children of God like you. Step eight is love everybody else too. So... Us is the believers, the followers of Jesus. How do we treat us? Love. Them is everybody else. How do we treat them? Love. So it's real simple. It's not a complicated process. If you are in front of another human being, how do you treat them? With love. Amen? It's not complicated. You don't have to figure out what category they fit in. You just love them. It's real simple. We love others. We love people who are like us, and we love people who are different from us. Let's go to the greatest commandment, Mark chapter 12. An individual asks Jesus a fantastic question that I would have asked if I had my wits about me and I was there. I'm so glad this guy asks this question, and I'm so glad Jesus answers it. Here we go. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. So the most important thing is to love God. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, love your neighbor as yourself. This is agape step eight love. Love the people that you interact with in your life, whoever they happen to be. Love other people. So Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? But he didn't just ask answer that question, he also gave the second greatest commandment. Because here's the deal, to understand that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is incomplete if we don't understand that that also includes loving other people. Our love of God allows us to connect with his heart and his purpose, and his heart and his purpose is to love the whole world. So when we connect with God in love, it also implies that we will love other people. And we are to love our neighbor. Now, how good at loving other people have Christians been over the last few centuries? Little shaky, right? Little shaky. Let's go all the way back to Jesus' day and we'll see that this heart problem has been around Since way back in Bible times. So let's go to Luke chapter 10, and we'll have a very similar conversation as we did in Mark chapter 12. Luke 10, starting verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Does test sound like the right heart? It's a little little iffy. That word kind of sounds like he's in opposition. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? So Jesus turns the question around to him. Well, what do you think? Unlike in the other case where Jesus answers the question, he turns it around to the other guy. Now, the other guy maybe was there on that other day. So this other guy answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a pretty good answer. He gave the answer that Jesus gave. I'm I'm liking this guy so far. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Here we see the heart come out. Because he's thinking to himself, love my neighbor. Okay, that sounds good, but I know there's people I'm supposed to hate. I know there's groups of people I'm supposed to hate. I understand that we're supposed to love our neighbor, but there must be some sort of religious technicality that allows me to hate whole groups of people, so I'm going to ask Jesus about this religious technicality. Who's my neighbor? Are there people we're supposed to hate? No. Let that sink into your heart, dear Christian. There are no groups of people that you are supposed to hate. There are none. So who is your neighbor? Jesus answers that question. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So this is a guy in need. He's been taken by robbers, beaten, stripped of everything he has, even his clothes, it says, and he's left half dead, laying on the side of the road. A priest, so someone like me, a pastor, a religious leader, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, so perhaps a worship leader, one of the singers in church, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, if you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, here it is. A Samaritan. Now, don't miss the depth of insult that Jesus is bringing by using Samaritan. Because when this man was asking Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He was sure Samaritans were not. He was sure this was a group he gets to hate. This is a group, they're half-breeds, who have distorted Judaism and true religion into a mess. We're supposed to hate them, I'm sure. And there's been tension between Jews and Samaritans for forever. So Jesus brings up one of the groups this guy is planning to hate, who already does hate and is wanting to justify his hate for. So there's a depth of insult here. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? (laughs) He asks, asks this guy. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Be a person of mercy to them. We love us, hallelujah. We are to love them as well. Don't look for a religious technicality or loophole that allows you to hate different groups of people. When it said Samaritan there, if you're a, uh, if you have strong political. Uh, alignments you can put the political party in there that you don't like you can read the parable that way if you've got different uh, religious biases or racial biases or socioeconomic biases you can put the groups of people that you don't like in there where it says Samaritan and let it hit that's the point Jesus is making is there is no religious loophole holding the love of God back From any group of people we are the hands and feet of Jesus amen what is our job as the church we are to bring the love of God to a hurting broken world if we don't want to bring the love of God to a hurting broken world we're not in line with God's plan and there is no one who is nameless or faceless to God everyone out there god knows and he loves and he cares about and he has a plan for and he wants to reach and who is going to reach that individual it's us it's it's the church and if we are willing to hate groups of people and to alienate groups of people and to not be willing to interact with groups of people, it's going to destroy God's plan to bring His love to a hurting world. So we must love our neighbor. Now the sermon's going to get hard. <laughs> I'm serious because there's, there's like... Four ways that I see, very clear ways, we're to direct our love according to the Scriptures. We're to love God, as Jesus said. We're to love our neighbor. He said that's the second greatest commandment. He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. We're to love each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's the fourth category that Jesus tells us to love. Let's read that in Luke chapter 6. 27 and 28. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Let's read that again. Let's go to the start. But I tell you who hear me, do you hear Jesus right now? Love your enemies. I looked up the Greek word there for enemy. It could mean foe. It means someone that's actively hurting you right now. It's an enemy. This is where it's personal. It's not just a group of people that you don't appreciate or that you disagree with. This is an individual or a group that is coming against you and against the people you love. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So last week we asked the question, are you capable of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as Jesus has loved you? Are you capable of loving your enemies? That's, that's another step. That's more powerful. That is something that makes my knees a little weak while I'm preaching it. Love your enemies. That's a challenge. How many people have had an enemy in life? It is the human condition. We have a variety of different enemies throughout life. People who hate us. People who curse us. People who come against us. We have enemies and Jesus is saying that we need to love them. That is a great challenge. I don't know that Christians are very good at loving their enemies. Now, I don't think anybody else is either. But they don't have a God commanding them to love their enemies. We do. We have a God that we claim to serve who says, love your enemies. And so we need to find out how can we do that. (laughs) Amen? Because it does not come naturally. It does not come naturally to love your enemies. In fact, as we've all noticed, something else comes very naturally. And so there's something that needs to be overridden in the old nature so that we can grab hold of this magnificent high calling which is to bring the love of God to a dark world. And let me tell you, the opportunity to show love to an enemy is not only the most difficult thing to do, but it's also the most powerful thing when it actually hits the mark. When someone sees that you love them even though there's this problem going on. They know that there's something different about you, that there's something in you that isn't in other people. And so not only is it extremely difficult, but it's something that can be extremely powerful. And this is a world-changing thing if we can love our enemies. How do we do it? (laughs) How do we get there? We're going to go back to a verse that we've read every week. 2 Peter 1 verse 9, we're going to see how the scriptures say we are to get to the place of loving with agape love our neighbors and our enemies, those who are different from us and those who are opposed to us. But if anyone does not have them, that is these eight things, which is including this step eight of agape love. If anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind. That means that you're just about your own life and you haven't seen past your own problems to be able to, to put everything into context. You're nearsighted and blind. You can only see your own issues and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So there's something that's been forgotten when we don't have these eight things. And so if we remember that thing, it's got to be able to help. So what are we to remember if we are to love? We are to remember that we have been cleansed from our past sins. I am to remember what Jesus has done for me. It's one of the blessings of not growing up in a Christian household. Now, I've raised my children in a Christian household. I very much encourage people to raise their children in a Christian household and indoctrinate your children into Christianity. That's a good thing. Don't give them a choice. If you wouldn't give them a choice whether or not to play, to play out on the freeway, then don't give them a choice on whether or not to go to hell. Okay? So, indoctrinate your kids in the truth. But I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and so I remember being an enemy of God. Those days are clear and plain to me. I know what that's like. So when it says that if they don't have these eight things, if forgotten that they've been cleansed from their past sins, I can go back and look and say, thank you, Lord, for rescuing me from damnation and hell and giving me everlasting life, purpose in this world to bring God's love and joy and to to participate in God's plan, and then to have everlasting life in the paradise of God from now on. I know what it's like to have gone from the one to the other. And so who am I to not grant that kindness, to not grant that mercy to other people? Who am I to hold back the love of God? So we must remember that we have been cleansed from our past sins, Or we end up on the wrong side of another parable that Jesus told. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18 and we see a response from an important question that Peter asks. So Matthew 18 starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? So last week when we talked about brotherly kindness, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, I said, once you become aware of this, you'll see it in the scriptures more and more. Because it's something that if we're not thinking about it, it fades off. But what is Peter's question about here? Is he talking about loving his enemies or is he talking about step seven, loving his brothers and sisters in Christ? How many times shall I forgive my brother? Don't miss that. Do we have opportunities to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ? (laughs) Because wrongs have been committed. In fact, sometimes your enemy might be a brother or sister. That puts us in 1 Corinthians, you know, completely defeated already territory, but it can happen. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or it's often translated 70 times seven, which is 490. And does that mean that when we get to 491, we get to just stick it to them? No, Jesus is saying, be a person of forgiveness and just keep forgiving. And of course, the context here is to, uh, to offer that to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the same thing applies to offering forgiveness to our enemies. And so let's read the rest of what Jesus has to say to his disciples. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, a talent was a measure of weight, about 70 pounds, the amount a man could carry. So about 70 pounds. So think of 70 pounds of coins times 10,000. That's a lot. Owed him 10,000 talents. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Is it a bad thing to have you and your property and your family sold off? Yeah, that's bad. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. He forgave him the debt and set him free canceled the debt and let him go. Are you seeing the parallel between us and God? That we come to God unable to pay the debt that we owe against his creation. We are incapable of paying the debt of sin. And so Jesus dies on the cross to forgive us and to take our sins away so that we can be reconciled with God and be set free. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So that's about how much lunch costs. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Have we heard that before? Yeah, when it was 10,000 talents. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Does this seem like a mess? Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Was there a debt of a hundred denarii? Yes, there was. The debt was real. Should he have just let it go since he had been forgiven 10,000 talents? Yes, in light of the great mercy of his master, he should have had mercy on his fellow servant. But instead, he holds that true debt, that real debt, against him. seems horrible to those who are observing it. Just like when Christians are unforgiving, unmerciful, and judgmental, it seems ridiculous because it's completely against the teachings that our God has given us, and it's completely against the glorious gift we have been given. This gets way worse. Next verse, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. So he gets the 10,000 talents put back on him and instead of being sold, he gets put into jail to be tortured until he pays back the 10,000 talents. That's not so good. The next verse is even worse. Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. How can we bring the love of God into this world even to enemies? I think we can only do it If we focus on the great mercy God has had on us. Because the debt is real. When people have hurt you, that's real. And it's a debt. And it's painful. And it's hard to love that person. Because it's a real debt. If we focus on that, it will be hard to overcome it. But if we remember that we've been cleansed from our past sins and we look at the great mercy God has had on us, then all of a sudden something clicks and we think, who am I to withhold mercy? I who have received so bountifully from the mercy of God, who am I to withhold? This, I believe, is how we get to the place of loving our enemies and we bring agape love To a dark hurting world.